You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Have you ever been around somebody who you, you feel like they're sick all the time? Yes. Who's that? Um, uh, you don't so, have to say. I don't, don't say their say. name. Yeah, <laughs> don't say their name, I guess. Uh, it's a guy, he he smokes and drinks. Okay. He doesn't particularly eat healthy. All right. And he's always bitching and moaning about not feeling well. I was, And a- I don't feel bad for him at all. <laughs> like dude, you, you're, you're not doing one thing. You don't even exercise. You're not doing one thing to make this better. I have been fortunate that I, I'm kind of one of those people who rarely get sick. I don't know that I've missed a day of work because I was sick ever. I'm around somebody right now that I, I feel like they're sick a lot. And I notice that same thing, that there's some habits, there's some environmental influence, there's some decisions that they make where they don't go to the doctor. Mm. I was talking to somebody the other day, or not the other day, this is maybe two years ago. It was somebody that I would only see in long sleeve shirts and they had a short sleeve shirt on and they raised their arm up and I saw this red mark on their arm. I was like, oh, what's, you know, what's that? They were like, oh, yeah, I saw the doctor. It was nothing. I said, doesn't look like nothing. That looks <laughs> bad. You should get a different doctor because that's definitely something. Yeah. And uh, turns out it was cancer. Jeez. Yes. Like skin cancer. Doctor just said, nah. Yes. You're good. And they came back later and they're like, hey, you know, thanks. I'm like what? You're like you told me to go to the doctor and I never go to the doctor. I never want to go to the doctor, but you seem so emphatic about it. And I never go to the doctor. But if I tell somebody to go to the doctor, it's a rare thing. And he goes, I went and it was cancer. And uh, just this past week, I was uh, talking to somebody and assistant and she was just feeling bad, looking bad, temperature. And, you know, if you're around somebody mm-hmm. all the time, you can tell if they're sick. Like, yeah. I was like, you should go to the doctor. She's like, oh, no, I'll get better. No, like you should really, you should go to the doctor. And she never did. This has been like two weeks now. She's got pneumonia. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. not like nothing. A third of her lungs yeah. are collapsed. And Whoa. Yeah. And people just don't want to interact with the doctor, I think. I think people are just reluctant. I don't know why. I think some people as well are, um, they kind of accept their fate. That's just how I am. I I was in that position for a while. I, whenever I was like senior in high school, maybe freshman in college, I had this chronic cough for like two years. I mean, I would cough a lot. And my friends would always be like, dude, you cough a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I was like, yeah. (laughs) It's just me, man. Yeah. No, that's not. Don't just don't just accept that. Well, what'd you do about it? Well, I once I started like eating healthy. Oh, you working to eat, out. Used to eat, like, I used garbage. to eat pretty, pretty yeah. bad. Eating healthy, working out consistently and drinking water and getting sleep. It's like, oh, well, when I got healthier, I got healthier. What a big shock. Right. <laughs> so that's who um, today we talked to someone who is. Uh, an expert in health and an expert in how you think about your health. Lindsay Mitchell is the founder of Vital Side, a membership program that empowers people with chronic illness and limbic system impairment to retrain their brain out of the chronic stress response so they can get relief from their symptoms and find freedom in their lives. She dealt with chronic illness, uh, Lyme disease specifically, and found that the common practices used to treat it were extraordinarily limited. So Lindsay started focusing her efforts on retraining her brain to get out of a constant state of flight or fight and into growth and repair mode. 
She's trained in neuro-linguistic programming, the emotional freedom technique, and thought field therapy modalities. This training, in addition to her background in internal medicine as a physician's associate and her experience with Lyme disease, make her uniquely qualified to assist and coach others in learning how to shift their response and experience positive changes to their symptoms. Over the past five years, Lindsay's worked with thousands of people from all over the world, teaching them how to heal the brain and give them the tools needed to access natural resilience through practical, self-directed, and science-forward neuroplasticity techniques. I learned a lot from our conversation with Lindsay. We talked about so many valuable topics. We discussed retraining your brain to improve your body's responses to stressful life events, using your brain's ability to change to make conscious decisions aligned with your values, breaking your body's stress cycles so you can live intentionally, visualizing the implications of a decision before implementing it, using your energy wisely so you don't waste your time, understanding brain and body connections to live intentionally and connecting with your ability to believe in yourself. Stick around for our conversation with Lindsay Mitchell. You're going to learn a lot and you might just rewire your brain. As always, I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, You're Lindsay. an expert on rewiring our brains. Sean's very disappointed. He <laughs> thought this was about rewiring other people's brains. <laughs> oh, I thought I was actually hired to rewire Sean's brain in particular today. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have a big enough budget for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited. I, I created a plan specific to you, Sean. So. Oh, you, you'll have to email me that. And I'll, okay. uh, I'll, I'll Files too large. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it won't go through. I'll invoice you offline. How did you get into that field of study? Yeah, I'm a physician associate by nature, or I guess by career choice. And so I worked in internal medicine uh, for years. And so my background is Western medicine. So like you kind of had the understanding, well, albeit more education <laughs> around medicine specifically in that Western world. So um, primary care, internal medicine, kind of that common type of medical model that you would see. And I was really good at it, really loved it. And so prior to that, I had studied molecular biology. I'm very science-based. I love science. I love learning about the body. And then I went through my own journey of getting a diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease and then not knowing where to go from there. So I did the whole Western medical root and felt what is Lyme disease? Lyme disease, it's a tick-borne illness that basically transmits this bacteria into the body and the body gets impacted. It originated, kind of was uh, founded, you could say, in Lyme, Connecticut. Lyme I always disease. wondered why they called it. Yeah, Lyme it's disease. got nothing to do with fruit. N nothing to do with limes. Mm. Yeah. No, different <laughs> no, no. I knew it was. I knew it was spelled <laughs> differently. I just, well, I wasn't sure how that interaction was happening, and if you just had to be in the same general area, or how that was contracted. Well, what's interesting is now we have more research that it's not just transmitted through a tick. So though it's still considered a tick-borne illness, mosquitoes can carry it. There can be other carriers. 
but basically it's a bacteria. So you hear like Borrelia burgdorferi is a common bacteria, even though there are more bacteria associated with Lyme. And the chronic part comes in because the body gets impacted so drastically when we have chronic Lyme disease. So then it causes a chronic inflammation. And then, you know, people have a variety of symptoms. So migraines, fatigue, joint pain, dizziness, sometimes people are wheelchair bound and hospitalized for a period of time. The body responds in different ways, but it ultimately comes back to that hyperinflammation that the body experiences as a result of the bacteria. So Sean and I, not health experts, not doctors, not medically trained or educated in any way. I'm hearing a lot more lately. You're really overselling it. Overselling my lack of education. Um, But I hear a lot more about inflammation now than it seems like ever, right? It, from a from a layman's perspective, we're talking about like throughout the body um, inflammation. Is this like acute inflammation in certain areas, and what causes it? Is it our diets? Is it caused by the illness, or the inflammation leads you to be more prone to the illness? That's the big question, and that's kind of how I fell upon the the field of neuroplasticity, which is what I do now, which just means the brain's ability to change. So inflammation is how the body responds to a perceived danger. So for example, if Sean, you were bitten by a tick that carried that bacteria for Lyme, and I was bitten by that same tick, how your body responds will be different from how my body responds. And so inflammation is basically our body's response to perceived danger. And it can show up in the body like in that acute way um, where you experience acute pain. And inflammation is basically a warning signal that says, hey, there's danger present and I'm going to respond. So it's actually the body's response rather than resulting from that bacteria or that virus or whatever it is itself. Mm. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. It's like it's, airbags going off and you're... Yeah, and I can see how that would screw things up. But it, were you aware of how you contracted it? I was, and a lot of people who have chronic Lyme are not. Um, I was bitten by a tick in the Redwoods in California, which actually Lyme, Lyme is not endemic there. And so that's why there's all this information coming out now of like, oh, you know, tick-borne illnesses can actually be... Um, you know, carried through the placenta can be transferred, you know, from mom to to child, you know, tick-borne illnesses can, you know, be carried by other bugs than ticks. And so it is really interesting for me, I was bitten by the tick. And then over the next six months, I started to develop symptoms. And at the time, you know, as a caregiver for for your listeners who are caregivers, it's so easy to just not think about yourself. At the time, I was doing a lot of travel. I was a travel PA and I just thought it was like jet lag and I didn't really think anything was wrong, even though I was aware of Lyme disease at the time. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, it's not endemic here. I actually went to grad school in Massachusetts, kind of near Lyme, Connecticut. So Lyme disease was like a tat, like it was on my practical exam. <laughs> so I, I knew quite a bit about it and I thought, no, it's not endemic here. So I didn't treat it. And six months later, I 
was taking naps during the day. My joints were so swollen. I had migraines and I got to the point where I was homebound and then bedbound for a couple of months where the pain was just too intense. My whole body, you know, experienced this inflammation. And what I equate all of that to is less of like, oh, I got this bacteria in my body and my body responded, but it was kind of this perfect storm of, I was already operating from a depleted immune system just through traveling and going to, you know, developing countries and being exposed to different toxins and just throughout my travels, combined with a lot of traumas I had experienced and not worked through and processed as a kid. And so it's then you get to this point where that tick bite becomes the straw that broke the camel's back. And then I had this huge inflammatory reaction. So so all of this to say how I responded to that tick bite could have very well been different from how either of you respond. And that's with many of things, right? We've we've seen it in the past couple of years with COVID. We've seen it with, you know, autoimmune conditions. If we tested everyone listening and to see what what type of active viruses or bacteria is in them, some people will be responding with hyperinflammation and hyperreactivity and symptoms while others will not. So it comes back to how the body is responding. And that's why the conversation of inflammation is so prevalent today. I have had a friend who had Lyme disease, and it seemed that she just got, as you described, she got really tired all of a sudden and just felt depleted. It seemed like the physicians that were working with her were sort of not aware of what to do about her or whatever they were doing didn't seem to be working. What what advice did you get and what decisions did you have to make once that was diagnosed that you had this Lyme disease? Yeah. And, and that's where I really pivoted from traditional Western medicine, because I went to those doctors like your friend who said, who, you know, who told me, all right, take doxycycline, you know, for about 30 days, which is the mainstay treatment for Lyme disease. That's how I had treated patients in the past. But a lot of people with that diagnosis are written off. So then when I started to get worse and continued to take doxycycline for months at a time, and then I only got worse, then, you know, I started to hear, I started to see different practitioners and I was told, oh, you're, you know, at the time I was in my twenties, you know, you're a female in your mid twenties. This is just going to get better with time. (laughs) You know, I don't know anything, but that sounds like the opposite of what would be true. You're sick in your mid twenties and it's going to get worse, man. You're already sick. Oh, people like to jump to hormonal dysregulation with any, with, with that kind of, you know, when you, when you start to talk about like, okay, dizziness, fatigue, you know, daytime fatigue, all these types of things, practitioners love to jump to hormonal dysregulation. And even if that shows up on a lab test, well, why? Why is why, why do I have hormones? this dysregulation? Yeah, why are my hormones dysregulated? Is that a typical experience for women? In my life, it seems to me that people who I know who have battled chronic illness seem more often than not to be women. And the ones who have a hard time figuring out what's going on tend to be women also. Hmm. Is that because of hormonal dysregulation seems to be more common for women? 
Um, and that seems that's like an easy thing for a doctor to say, or, or am, is my anecdotal evidence not really in line with reality? Well, what's interesting is working in this field of active neuroplasticity and chronic illness for the past six years, I see it equally with men and women. I think that probably, I mean, I know that a lot of Western medical systems are antiquated in how we think about hormonal dysregulation, you know, having gone from, oh, it's just PMS, right? PMS was like, a diagnosis for everything related to hormonal dysregulation. That was what probably 50 years ago that we stopped just blaming everything on PMS. But the, the Western medical model is antiquated in a lot of different aspects. And so now, okay, now we have more integrative, more holistic doctors, practitioners to come and say, well, okay, but why is this dysregulation happening? But you perhaps hear it from women more often because uh, women in general are, in my experience at least, they rely more so on the community aspect to seek and learn information. A lot of my male clients come to me and they want to work one-on-one. They don't necessarily want to be sharing this with so many different people or rely on that kind of like community um, to ask Mm. questions. So you're saying the women are more vocal about it? They're more vocal and I think they're more likely to seek, um, seek and, advice, and kind of yeah. seek advice mm-hmm. and then try different things to see what helps, you know, a lot. That's how we learn, right? That's how a lot of women, I mean, this is a very primal instinct for you to learn in the tribe and communicate and rely on that kind of community. So I think for men, it's naturally less likely to occur just as a result of, um, that may not be as instinctual. So it, it, but it does happen with men too. And a lot of my male clients, yes, the, the hormonal dysregulation, but I think why practitioners have such a hard time figuring out what's going on, or they like to just put a blanket statement on it, like, okay, well, your hormones are dysregulated, you know, let's try to like give you testosterone or estrogen or something like that. So these are all band-aid approaches. And the question that I always ask is why? Why are the hormones dysregulated? And so uh, practitioners, unfortunately, you know, they only have so much time, especially ones that take insurance. You know, when I was working as a PA, I was slotted 15 minutes for each patient. So if someone came into me with this whole slew of symptoms, I only had so much time and I could only really work on one or two chief complaints. That's why you often hear people with chronic illnesses, they leave that appointment with the idea that all of these symptoms are all in my head. And Mm, it's so freaking frustrating and it's so belittling when most of people with chronic symptoms just want to be heard and acknowledged that something is going on. And so Coming back to this concept of why is my body in particular experiencing such inflammation, I think is the key question to take away. If you are experiencing those chronic symptoms, or maybe you have Lyme disease or an autoimmune condition, and you're just not seeing changes. So when we when we look at big decisions, I, I think usually things sort of come to a head, right? You, you just say, I'm, I'm sick of this. I've got to make a change. I'm sure you got to a point in this journey where you said, I'm taking this into my own hands. I'm going to try a different approach. Whatever they're telling me doesn't seem to be working. And it's not that you were uninformed about 
medical treatments in your line of work. What caused you to say, I'm taking a different path? I have a natural tendency to uh, be a rebel. (laughs) So that's naturally, and it was likely birthed out of trauma as a kid. And I had to like fight and I had to stand up for myself. But I like to say a lot of, you know, really good qualities and characteristics that we do have are birthed out of trauma. So when someone tells me like, you know, I have heard, well, this is just all in your head or just wait it out. Or there's really nothing that you can do to get better. You're just going to have to make yourself comfortable. I naturally was like, hell no. You know, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to prove you wrong. So a lot of then my, a lot of then the steps that I took, the action steps that I took were to prove these practitioners wrong. And I think everyone who is in that place of, I need to take the next step, but I don't know how, really has to cultivate some sort of catalyst for change. So for me, (laughs) it was wanting to prove them wrong with my natural rebel nature. I think for those of us who who have a uh, natural tendency to buck up to authority and rebel like you're describing it's it, it i can get there really quickly to the decision of okay you're not giving me answers i'm gonna go find my own right you're telling me to do it like this and it isn't working i'm gonna go do it differently that seems like an easy decision what seems like a really hard decision is to find the other solution that works right because we've we've said the term western medicine a lot in the past you know 15 minutes western medicine is one category perceived by many to be the only or the correct category. And then everything else has a perception, particularly by those in the Western medicine world, as woo-woo hippie bullshit. So how do you go into the land that where woo-woo hippie bullshit does exist and find the truth in that area? I was so desperate. I would try anything. And naturally, I am an an open-minded person. You know, I'm willing to try anything once for the most part. And when you're that desperate and you're that sick and you're not getting those answers that are are providing you with any result, you just continue to seek. So luckily I had, you know, my husband, I had my family, people advocating for me. So I do, I am so, so grateful for that because those are people who, you know, would advocate for me when I just didn't have the energy to do that. But then it's kind of taking that next step into, well, you know, screw it. I'm just going to try anything. So like you could find me, I live in Austin, Texas now, and you could find me in Buda, Texas, more rural part of Texas, receiving biomagnetism treatment from a Hispanic practitioner specializing in energetic medicine. You know, you could find me doing all these different things because all I wanted was a result. All I wanted to see was to see something differently. Um, That said, when I came across the concept of neuroplasticity, or from here on out, I'll call it brain retraining, there was so much that resonated with me because it took maybe woo-woo concepts that Tony Robbins or Rachel Hollis may talk about when they're motivating yeah. people. And I say that with love. I've got a few woo-woo things in my tool belt. Well, it's well okay. look, here's the thing. I, I come from that like scientific background too. I needed the understanding 
of what changes in the physiology behind these concepts like neuro-linguistic programming, again, like Tony Robbins is certified in, obviously he applies it in different ways, right? To, to see your goals manifest, to find success, these types of things. But when I started to read about brain retraining with people who have chronic illnesses, then I started to learn what happens when the body perceives danger and the impact it has on the brain. So all of a sudden, some of these woo-woo concepts that I had like learned a little smidge about throughout my life, I, it started to make sense to me. So kind of that basic idea, neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change. So when we experience a perceived or real threat, like a bacterial infection. Our bodies recognize that threat. Our brains receive the message that the threat is present and starts to send signals through hormones and neurotransmitters to the rest of our body to respond saying, hey, bring up the big guns. Now we need to really you know, send inflammation to different parts of the body, send warning signals, trigger that immune system response, do all these different things to keep you alive, because that's what our body is responsible for doing. I mean, if you think about it, for those of us who are alive today, our hearts are working for us all the time, right? Our blood is flowing through our bodies, our lungs are breathing. We have all these incredible parts of our bodies just trying to keep us alive. So then the focus shifts from digesting, you know, regularly breathing, all of these things that naturally happen to get you out of danger so that you can survive. And that's when you may start to recognize, okay, I'm experiencing that high inflammation, that anxiety that comes along with hypervigilance, like being aware, like hyper aware of things in my environment, pain that occurs from the inflammation, the headaches, the, the pain in the joints, um, sensitivities to food and chemicals. And all of a sudden the world becomes a, a very dangerous place. Again, this isn't a conscious thought we're having. This is a physiological response. So when I started to understand how the body responds with that threat or that danger or perceived danger, there was this light bulb moment. And I was like, okay, this makes so much sense because despite the medication that I took, despite all the different modalities that I've used and the detox that I had, if my body is still responding, like there's danger, I'm still going to have that inflammation. I'm still going to have those sensitivities. I'm still going to experience all these symptoms. And so that made so much sense to me. And that's why I ended up going down the route that I did with brain retraining. And at the time, there were only a handful of programs, maybe two that were offered, but I started reading books. Dr. Norman Deutsch, Dr. Joe Dispenza talks a lot about this information. There's Dr. Candace Pert, there, she has some information on, on how we experience emotions and how our bodies experience life events. So I started reading all of these books and applying some of this information to my life. And I started to decrease that stress response. And as a result, started to see progress. What was the process for you like adopting these strategies? How hard or easy was it to do what was recommended? 
When you're so desperate, you know, you feel like this is my only choice. This can be a good thing, you know, because you're at the bottom of the barrel. There's no place but up. So you try again, you you continue to seek. This is where a lot of clients who reach out are. So it was easy because I felt like there was no other choice. So the choices in my mind were try something new or die. Yeah. When you chose to try something new, you know, you're choosing a path that is more, uh, requires more work on your part than taking the pills that were prescribed to you by the doctors that were misdiagnosing the problem and were giving you a solution that didn't work, right? At least it was an easy solution to implement. You take the pill. Um, in To focus on retraining your brain, that sounds certainly more difficult than taking a pill. How difficult was it? The difficult part was perhaps finding tools that worked. Brain retraining just to dispel it for you and for listeners is something we're doing all the time. So brain retraining sounds super intimidating, like you're going to have to implement all these different protocols and sit down and learn all this information. But simply put, it's doing something different. <laughs> so what I do in vital side is called intentional brain retraining. So we're intentionally choosing activities, thoughts, different behaviors for a different outcome. You know, I'm familiar with this a little bit from Tony Robbins and you know, looking at, at how those thoughts can manifest goals and manifest success and those types of things. Take me through a little bit of the specifics on how, what are the processes that differentiate this where you're trying to affect health versus what Tony Robbins might say when trying to affect uh, goal achievement or manifestation of, of success, those types of things. The distinct difference would be the goal in brain retraining and vital side working with chronic symptoms is number one, to decrease inflammation so that the body is set up for success to do what it does best, which is heal and recover effectively. When you look at someone like Tony Robbins, who offers, you know, practical NLP tools for people to use rather than, and, and decreasing the stress response can be something that is desired for the individual, but mostly the idea there is for that person to create a life that they desire. So the end product is different. The tools to get there are similar. So each is, is it something that you desire, right? To decrease the stress response and feel better. And this one is like manifesting a goal that you have for yourself. And, and with the decreasing the stress response, what we do in the process that I use is first decreasing the stress response and in the process connecting with a goal that you have. So if you're someone with fibromyalgia and pain is an issue for you, we learn to decrease the stress response through structured tools to achieve goals you have set for yourself. So I had someone who started January last year who was in a wheelchair and she started using these tools. She wanted to run a 5K. So implementing these tools and in the process, decreasing inflammation, decreasing that stress response to set her body up for success to achieve the goal that she wants to achieve. So with 
Tony Robbins approach. And of course, I don't know the ins and outs of his approach. I, I know a handful of it, but a lot of motivational speakers use the same kind of concept of dispelling like core beliefs or limitations, perceived limitations, rather than decreasing the stress response, you know, um, ridding yourself of some of these perceived limitations in order to reach that end goal. For a lot of people, it's success or a healthy relationship or achieving a goal that you desire. So is this as simple as, as, as manifesting through visualization what outcomes you're wanting physically? Or is it something similar to a, a meditative state that you get into that would reduce stress hormones? What, what is it specifically? Yeah, those two are, are components of it, not not the only thing that we use. So what I use is a combination of modalities. So visualization being one of them, you know, being able to get into that, you know, brainwave state that is helpful can be really beneficial as well. Getting into that present state or getting into the state of learning can be really beneficial. For people with chronic illnesses, though, it's harder to sit down and simply just meditate or practice mindfulness, that can be really difficult when you have chronic symptoms. And if anything, it can exacerbate some of the symptoms. So I walk people through a daily protocol that includes some breathing, some movement, language, basically like storytelling. So being able to connect with a new association to the event that you want to achieve. So changing our emotional state, changing our neurochemistry and physiology behind a certain event. So maybe if that's running a 5K, it's using visualization to put yourself in that place, using our sensory experience to also do it. But in addition to visualization piece, I also use smell, I use um, sound. So there's a lot of different components and we go through it in a very structured way. In addition to that, we break the stress cycle again and again. So for people that I work with, it's a 24-7 state of stress. It's not just like, oh, acutely, like I'll experience anxiety, you know, once a month. It's, no, the, the chronic symptoms, the pain, the anxiety, the um, dizziness, the symptoms daily. So we need to break that stress cycle again and again, this negative feedback loop of communication of that perceived danger. So it also looks like changing natural habits and natural thoughts. So it's using state changers consistently throughout the day to break that stress pattern again and again and again. And so my program in Vital Side, the Rewire program, which I'm talking about specifically, it walks you through how to do this in a structured way, but even changing your environment. So changing what's on the walls for a, a new and different outcome, changing the clothes that you wear. Jeez, I believe that. You, you go to you ever go to someone's house and you get stressed out immediately? Oh, I have been to so many. Where, like, this where, is an ugly, wretched place. Yeah. No wonder you're grumpy. No, yeah. No. <laughs> no? I, I, and I, that's not a joke. Well. It's like, I remember whenever I got my first office, I was talking with Sean, and he he is, like, so talented at visualizing, and I'm not. Like, I can't visualize a space, Right. He can look at an empty room and go, oh, you put a wall here and a couch here and a piece of art here. And I'm like, I don't know, man, I just see four walls. You know, I I just got nothing. So he was like helping me brainstorm 
And then I started to think of art and I was like, okay, well, well, I want art because I like art. So if I put this, put art here and art here and uh, it was expensive, you know, at the time for me, what I was spending on the art, I was like, oh, geez, like, you know, should I really spend this money on art? And he goes, you will get the money back on the expense of this art with how it changes how you think when you're doing your work. Mm -hmm. I believe that because this, the office that I do my work in, it's beautiful. I feel good. Every time I show up, no matter if I'm having a good day or bad day, like I'm, it's, I feel peaceful. Oh there. yeah. When, when you go to someone's physical space where they spend their time, whether it's their house, their office, <clears throat> you can walk into their space and tell instantly the quality of the decision-making person <laughs> that they are. You can just tell yeah. how they do things, how they decide things. It's funny. I was in an office where we took down a, a piece of art and it never got replaced. Mm-hmm. And it was indicative of how slowly decisions were made in that in that environment because a replacement never never happened, and so decisions weren't being made. So it was like there's there's a cue to you as to how decisions are being made. When I think about this, I, I think that when this comes to decision making, is that if we can lower our stress levels, if we can visualize the outcome that we're wanting, I think that it comes to a point where you're faced with those decisions, those decisions take less energy. They create less stress. You'll make better decisions if you have visualized what the, the outcomes that you're wanting are. Yeah. A lot of like Olympic athletes visualize their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was the Soviets that started it like in the, you know, cold war era. Like mm-hmm. They started to learn that if their athletes could visualize not winning, don't, don't visualize standing there in the center of the ring with your hands up, visualize the start of the match how you're going to go out there, how you're going to hold your fist when you're boxing your opponent, how you're going to throw your jab, how it lands, how it feels when your shoulder extends. Visualize all the things that you're actually doing, not the outcome you want. If you focus on the outcome, you're probably not going to get it because you're missing all the work that goes into creating that outcome. Visualize how you're going to swim, how you're going to pull the the strokes, how you're going to do all these things. And then visualize what happens when you're behind, right? Visualize coming from behind in a race. Mm-hmm, visualize mm-hmm. over getting knocked down and getting back up. And visualize every scenario of good and bad. So when it happens, you are more prepared to react in that moment. And um, I train a lot of jujitsu. One of the best coaches ever, ever, ever. His name is John Donaher. He was a professor of philosophy, I think at Columbia, before he became a jiu-jitsu coach. He doesn't even, I don't think, train jiu-jitsu anymore because he has like back injuries, hip injuries, he's older. Um, but he trains unquestionably the top team in the world, the number one best team and the number one best athlete named Gordon Ryan, who is unquestionably the best jiu-jitsu athlete ever. Nobody disagrees. I mean, he's the... Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan of jiu-jitsu. His coach is John Donaher, and John Donaher taught him to visualize these techniques, and it accelerated his learning. You know, the average athlete goes from day one to black belt in 10 to 12 years, and I think Gordon Ryan was competing at an elite level, like, with inside of five. Mm. Um, so I'm with you, Lindsay, on visualizing and how that can you know, train our brain to have physical outcomes that we're looking for. What do you say to people who say, yeah, that works for, you know, training 
training physical movements, but what goes on inside, you know, beneath the skin, uh, with your, your stomach illness or, or whatever your inflammation, uh, your brain's not going to help fix that. There are studies done to show physical changes that result from this brain body and mind body connection. So there's a study done on participants who I, I believe it was for about three months where people would simply use visualization to think about lifting a weight, training one specific muscle group, you know, so training your biceps and you know, half of the participants just thought about it for a certain amount of time every day for three months. The other half actually went to the gym, lifted the muscles or lifted the weights, you know, and were using their muscles. And they measured the physical muscle growth after this period of time. The people who were actually lifting the weights had a 30% muscle growth in the bicep. The people who just used thought, had a 15% growth in their muscle, not lifting anything. You're telling me I can save an hour every morning <laughs> and I can stop going out the outside and doing pull-ups? If you use that hour for visualization. So uh, okay, into, that's, that's, uh, that's It true. doesn't save you time. I can't just run it through my head real quick. Yeah. But you know what? Here's the benefit is there's no, you don't have to rest between sets on visualizing the pull-ups. Well, I, I, I had seen something similar to that where it was applied. I can't remember if it was archery or some some ac archery some athletic activity where the the time spent visualizing the act and hitting it was as valuable as as actually doing it. I definitely it, believe that it, with I, archery. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised to hear on the on the muscle growth. That's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought that. That single answer goes a long way to dispel skepticism that people might have toward the power of visualization. When you started, when you decided to found Vital Side, who were you hoping to help? People just like me who had gone through something similar with these chronic symptoms. Because in the realm of chronic illness, there's such little hope. There's such little hope. I remember going to a support group for Lyme disease in Austin. And I walked in, I sat there for, well, I think I ended up walking out. The, the, the class was like, or the session was two hours long. You'd go around the room and you'd just talk about the stuff you were dealing with, the agony, the pain. I was sitting there feeling worse, <laughs> like just feeling so bad, symptoms exacerbated, feeling hopeless. And at one point I was like, I gotta get the hell out of here. Like these, this is not my crew. And I think I walked yeah. out during break. There's so much hopelessness. And I remember receiving the diagnosis of Lyme disease and going to the internet. Well, to find I want to back up a second. You, you bailed on these people. Like they, you, yeah. you pro I'm imagining you felt very alone in this process where you're chronically ill, you're sick beyond belief. You're getting no answers. You finally found your tribe of people who are experiencing the same pain and suffering as you. Turns you, out it's a pity you party. You go, they ain't my tribe. Yeah. yeah. You know, what did you, I mean, other than just their complaining and hopeless, how, how easy was that to say, what was going through your mind when you said, nah, not for me? I think for people who can understand how environment makes them feel, it's a fairly intuitive decision. So just like if you're talking to someone 
I mean, you've had this experience. Everyone has had this experience where you're talking to someone, just like going into that office that made you feel a certain way when you're in a group or you're talking to someone and you just feel your energy start to dissipate. We're made up of energy, right? 99.9999999% energy. So when you get that gut feeling of this, these people aren't my tribe or this person's making me feel like shit, you want to leave. You you leave and... Remember, Sean, remember when we were in uh, San Antonio at that conference? No. Tell me oh my you. gosh. We were at a conference for... Uh, business owners and entrepreneurs, we were sitting down on the last day of this conference and there was like a dinner and then a party and then like a breakfast that morning. And so we still had one more night. We had paid for another night of the hotel room. We're sitting there at dinner and at our table was just a group of guys that had the biggest, each of them had the biggest ego I've ever seen. Like they were just bragging about their business, bragging about their success, bragging about their kids and nobody was asking each other questions. It was amazing. It was mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, so this year I think we're going to hit 3 million in sales. Man, wow, that's uh, cool. We're, uh, so we're going to get uh, about 4 million this year, uh, you know, and this is how we did that. And I'm like, they, they weren't interested in each other. They were just interested in talking about their own successes. And I remember sitting there, I couldn't get a word in. I wasn't really particularly interested in getting a word in at the, after a few minutes. And I was no longer interested in them. Because I could tell what they were about. And I got, I had, in every other area of my life, I'm surrounded with such genuine people who are so, like, so kind and so interested in you. And they're, they're not egotistical. And so I was so sensitive to it that I remembered standing up. I didn't say anything to Sean. I stood up and I walked to the hotel room and I got my bag. And he came like five minutes later and he's like, what are you doing? I said, we're leaving. <laughs> we left and we just I went home. That now. We just hauled ass. We just said, we're like, yeah. let's go. <laughs> These people suck. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting how the environment impacts you. you uh, know, it I made mean, me it, feel horrible. Yeah. I was like, cause on one hand it was like, these people were making me feel like it wasn't worth a shit. And then on the other hand, I just felt gross being around people that, talked that way. Mm -hmm. It was like, I shouldn't feel that way about myself. I don't really feel that way about myself. And then, but I don't, what am I going to get from people that are motivated by, you know, pounding their chest? Well, it, it had to, it, it had to be troubling. I, I would think for, for Lindsay to finally find a, what you thought was a solution and then realize these people were, were in a sort of a negative feedback loop. That, that wasn't going to be helpful. And fortunately, you were able to recognize that and pull out and, and seek some other solutions that uh, were useful. Well, and in that situation y'all were in and, and Sanger kind of like naturally, intuitively recognizing like I need to get the hell out of here. I mean, you're a brain retrainer. We are all brain retrainers. So in that moment, you get that gut feeling or that stress response may kick in, that fight flight response of like, I need to leave. That is that perceived threat and you feel like you're under threat and then you leave and you're like, okay, now I feel better. And so that is what I experienced in that moment. And, and look, misery loves company, but I knew that, and, and I can't blame the chronic community because of course there are horrible situations that people deal with, but 
again, it's that rebel side of me that was like, this isn't your tribe. This isn't what's going to help you to feel better. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of information, like, you know, you think about different therapeutic modalities, like talk therapy, that can be really great for venting. But if you don't want to vent and you want to see results in how you feel and to change behaviors, you'd use cognitive behavioral therapy, where you can see changes to the way that you feel through using specific tools. So there's a time and place for everything. But I just knew that that wasn't something that resonated. And I, you know, then I turned to the internet, you know, Instagram is where I ended up finding someone who posted the blog post on neuroplasticity, which sparked my whole journey into using brain retraining. So you you decided to start Vital Side to help people who were just like you were dealing with chronic illness, had no hope. You're providing them hope, but you're also providing them a a practical solution. what what was it like working with the the first few clients that you had and, and learning how to be an effective coach and advocate for them? It was really interesting. You know, I I've always been complimented on my bedside manner. I've always loved just speaking to the real human aspect in all of us. You know, connecting with that person. With a lot well, a lot of practitioners aren't that way. Um, but it has always come to really came really naturally to me. So when I started working, I actually started going to people's houses. Uh, there was a practitioner that I worked with closely, an integrative doc who would send um, recommend me to his patients. This was my first referral partner. And I'd go to people's houses and I'd use some of these different tools and I'd spend anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours with people, like really intensive work with sick people. And it took me about eight months to kind of really perfect some of the protocols and structure them for people with chronic symptoms. So learning, you know, what worked well for people, what didn't work well for people, you know, going through this process of elimination, experimental phase, and then really coming up with specific structured protocols that people can use. So it took me about eight months of doing that. But it, it was tough at first because, you know, I had spent years going through my own healing journey, then felt better, started my own business and had to learn how to do that, had to learn how to coach, which a lot of learning about these other modalities really helped. Then talking and coaching people who had something very similar to me, it took me then years after that to really learn how to differentiate my energy from theirs and learn how to coach, not mixing our own personal energies, if that makes sense, and simply being able to show up for that person truly and solely in this flow state and working with them. So it was such a like a, a process. And at this point, you know, six years down the road where I have other coaches on the Vital Side team and you know, I've worked with over 2000 people. I'm so much more confident today than I ever was. And so for, and like everyone has imposter syndrome starting out everyone. And, you know, is something that you continue to deal with, but um, it's definitely a process. I think if you allow yourself space and room to grow, time is your, your biggest asset in, in your own personal growth. Yeah. It's a, it's a, 
great burden of a coach or teacher, leader, advisor role to not fall into whatever emotion the client is feeling, whether it's a negative emotion or a positive emotion. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to go buy this new speedboat and take a second mortgage out to do it, whatever it is. Oh, I, you know, I, I, I found this solution that's going to solve all my problems and it's a magic pill that's going to cure all my inflammation. It's such great news. Okay. If I get excited, you know, I might be feeding into this false hope that this person has that this is going to work out, or I might encourage them inadvertently to make a decision that I know probably isn't going to work for them. Uh, or if they're nervous, fearful, anxious, it's easy to like carry that with us when we are acting in those roles for people. It's hard to remain stoic and be that stable light for people. What are the key decisions that your clients are having to make to be able to have the successful results that you're shooting for? First, understanding that brain and body connection. So understanding when that stress response or that chronic stress response shows up in their lives. It's really easy, like a really kind of hard thing at first for, pe for people is learning like, oh no, this is a, just a result of my diagnosis. Is it or is it your body's response to what's happening inside of you? So it's learning to differentiate that. And then after, you know, you start working through the material and you get that understanding, then the next step is really connecting with your belief of being able to see something different for yourself. So it's not something that comes naturally to people, especially people who have been disappointed. Like most of my clients are like, I've tried literally everything and this is the last thing. Of course, you have all this evidence that you cannot change, you cannot get better, you cannot feel better. So we walk you through this process of reconnecting with your own ability to believe in yourself. And, you know, I just had someone write a testimonial two days ago, and, and she said, once I worked on believing in myself, once I was able to carry that with me day in and day out, I recognized there was nothing I couldn't do. And it doesn't mean that overnight, she's like, yeah, I'm gonna go, you know, swim, <laughs> swim 20 laps or yeah, I'm going to go uh, run a marathon. No, it takes mental, emotional, physiological, physical preparation for these things. But when you hold that belief and you can hold on to it again and again, you will see real changes in your life, which brings me to the last step, which is consistency and implementation of the tools. You can learn all the information. So many of us are such good at being seekers, but we don't integrate the material into our lives. So we do a course, especially in 2023, all of us have done some sort of online course. It may have been really great information, but if you don't apply it, it's going to go in one ear and out the other, and then you're not going to see any changes to your life. So that next step is really consistency. And so the group sessions, the private sessions, the community, all these things help to maintain that consistency and that integration piece. I love it. Thank you for sharing that with us. I learned a lot listening to you, Lindsay, and I really appreciate you being here. Where can people find your information about the work you're doing? Yeah. So if you're looking for some kind of more information, Brainer Training is totally new. There's a lot of great free resources on my Instagram, and you can look up at my vital side. And there's also a lot of really cool information on my website. That's vital-side.com. And there's like a quick 
seven-day brain retraining course called Reset, where you can start implementing some of these protocols to get a taste for what brain retraining is. And so you can find that on my website. Great. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it's an interesting discussion with Lindsay on, on neuroplasticity, and it really confirmed what I believe when we look at decision-making and alignment. She talked about being aware of your stress responses, which is just sort of understanding where you are, looking at the consistency or connecting, rather, with your beliefs, and then taking action and having a consistency of the implementation. And so it just really lines up with understanding yourself, your beliefs, connecting those with your goals, and then making sure the actions are moving you towards your goals and that those goals are aligned with your belief. I agree 100% with that. My takeaway was that it's okay to leave bad environments, you know, whether that's a something as big as a job or a city that's not serving you, but on a micro level, it could be a dinner table. It's not working. It could be a support group that you found that you've realized very quickly is not helping your energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to quit. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I want a a different phrase. Well, it's it's okay to remove yourself from an environment that isn't working. It's okay to leave. Yeah. All right. We'll say it that way. It's okay to leave something. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.